Hi, this is Let's Go Again, a podcast for indie creatives who are navigating reality while building the dream. I'm your host, Courtney Romano, a writer, director in New York City, and the founder of Queensbird Films. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the concept of time horizons and how long it takes to catch a big break. We know, intellectually at least, that big breaks can happen at any time. And yet, it's still easy, very easy, to be seduced by the myth that somehow we are behind or it's too late for us if it hasn't quite happened yet. And part of that thinking has to do with believing big breaks are given to us by people out there and that we just have to wait for someone to notice us. But I'm convinced that there's another way to make magic happen in our creative pursuits. I think big breaks can be taken, even to a certain degree, planned. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, updates from this week and an offering for you. So for this week's What I Worked On, I wanted to kind of do it a little bit differently. I feel like a lot of times I'm telling you (laughs) my emotional state of being (laughs) with the work. And while I think that is helpful, like whenever I hear another writer cursing the writing process, I'm like, okay, yes, I am on track. This is correct. I also think it's kind of helpful to list out the things that people are actually practically doing from moment to moment in their week. So that's what I'm going to do in this section today. You may or may not be aware of this, but Queensbury Films actually has two podcasts. This one, Let's Go Again, obviously, and then The Break Breakdown, which is the one that I started in 2020 to help me build a community and an audience around the things that I was making by talking about how I made them. And this last season of the break breakdown this is season three. Um, it was all about how we made Kinsley versus my web series that premiered this year. Um, but we also ended up having a few bonus episodes with other filmmakers who have done amazing things. All that to say that is running parallel to this one. And that was a lot of the work that I did this week. I also, as I told you last week, have been working on this partnership um, that I think might be going live when this podcast goes live, or at least around this time, it should be coming out soon. Another uh, sort of package, I don't know if you call it a package, but uh, idea, workshop, um, (laughs) rumination, manifesto, guide, Um, clearly haven't landed on the language for it, uh, but of how to build an audience for an indie creative. I think a lot of times I see many people, myself included, when I'm doing postmortems and audits of myself, like not really getting the initial foundation laid first before trying to build an audience. And so I've tried to kind of condense my, you know, over a decade worth of working for star- startups and small businesses in the marketing department and the content department and the strategy department. I've tried to condense that into a <laughs> a something. <laughs> and I'm working on that right now. And I and I hope that that will be something that I share soon because I think we are entering this zone and this time uh, in 2023 going into 2024 where building your own audience is actually the only pathway. I mean, look, that's a bold statement. I don't know if I can stand behind that statement from five seconds ago. It, it's never the only pathway. But do I think it is a 
really viable pathway for a lot of indie creatives who want to maintain, retain control over their creative work and also have a business? Yes, I do. So I've been working a lot on that kind of like um, thinky stuff. (laughs) that part of my brain. And then I've been watching a lot of documentaries that have to do with my feature, the general broad strokes idea of the feature. So I've been letting that happen. As if you've been tuning in, the sleep regression with my little baby son is still sleep regressing. So, you know, we're doing the best that we can. I've been editing and writing and creating these things while letting the the soup of my (laughs) imagination brew. And um, that's where I am this week. All right, let us pull a card. This week we're going back to the archetype deck. I love it. It's my favorite. Um, And there's so many cards in this deck and I haven't pulled all of them. So it's just, it's fun to like get to know this deck. So wherever you are right now in your life, Whatever situation you're hoping this illuminates, this this card pull, or if you're just you know trying to get grounded in this podcast and see, oh something already flew out of it. Oh, the comic. All right, I pulled the comic. Wherever you are, the comic. Wherever you are, whatever you're thinking about, whatever the project is that you are trying to launch or do or create or get more momentum with. I pulled the comic. This card is for you. So let me get the book and read you the meaning. By the way, this card always comes up for me. Like I just said, there are like a hundred, I don't know how many cards are in this deck, but there's so many and it's always the comic coming up. I don't know if it's trying to say like, Courtney, be funnier, (laughs) try harder. Anyway. Okay. The comic, the joker, the clown, the fool. The comic carries a remedy for all that ails this world. Amid the deepest pain and suffering, there is always the potential to lift up and out of the darkness through laughter. Though dismissed by some as lowbrow or unsophisticated, this archetype actually has a highly advanced mind. Some may use the word genius, as humor requires one to see the situation from afar rather than to be swept away by the drama. The comic sees and accepts the messiness of life, using it as material to be mixed and shaped into a potion to soothe the stressed and serious mind. They literally lighten us up. Thus, within the comic is usually the sage or the magician, working healing magic upon any audience who will lend an ear. The comic may be the archetype that heals the deep division in our world, one pun at a time. When it's in the darkness, it is sarcastic, harsh, brooding, drunk, and when it is in the light, it is hilarious, ingenious, spirited, easygoing. The thing that sticks out to me about this reading in regards to what we're going to talk about today with time horizons and catching a big break is I feel like when we think about the big break, oh man, I got I to gotta get my break. I got to get, I, I got to catch a break. Like I, I just need to break through. There's all of this desperation, anxiety, angst built up behind it. And the comic is like, lighten up, dude. It's cool. It's chill. <laughs> like just one day at a time, maybe like. And also seeing kind of what's funny about grasping on to the idea of a big break as as if the big break is going to solve everything. And I'm saying this from the eye, like I 100% still somewhere in my little brain feel like, well, if I just get that big break, then I will whatever, X, Y, Z. And I know that's not true. Intellectually, I know that's not true. 
But I think I still have that somewhere like deep in the shadows and recesses of my unconscious. And so I feel like if I say that, maybe someone out there also feels that way. And I think the comic is really trying to get us to see that it can be lighter than that. It can be more fun than that. It can be more playful and there can be magic and there can be, um, you know, a little bit more freedom and possibility and, and spaciousness in just thinking about, look, your, your, your career is long if you're lucky. So let the ebbs and flows come and have a sense of irreverence when it comes to trying to make it like, don't grasp so hard. Like, be a little bit more, you know, have a little bit more of a light touch. Um, so that's what I got out of it. I wonder what you got out of it. Sometimes I really wish you could just talk right back to me into my ears. All right. So the comic, let's let that set the tone for today's episode all about catching your big break and time horizons. When I was in college for theater and dance, I used to have this judgment that people who quit acting quit because they failed at it. I convinced myself that if I just didn't quit, then I wouldn't be a failure. I don't think I need to explain why that thinking is full of holes and judgments and like weird made up rules. I went to a liberal arts college. I got a BA, not a BFA. We did not get the fine arts. We just got the regular old arts. And there were a lot of my post-collegiate professional peers who were showing up with BFAs. And everyone else that I was auditioning with had this specialized BFA where they were hyper-specifically trained in, in musical theater, in the technical, strategic information about musical theater. They were singers who would specialize in the mix between head voice and belt at around an F or F sharp. Like that was their sweet spot. And that F or F sharp was what got them in every audition room. And here I was walking into an audition with like a very clumsy book of songs I put together myself, a facility for dance composition and an education in 18th century drama and feminist theory, like among a lot of other things. But no one's like really pulling you you know, into an audition room to talk about 18th century feminist dramas. They're really looking for that FF sharp mixed belt. So even though I had an education that taught me to be a sort of creative generalist, living in a culture that so much prizes specialized, tangible, marketable skills that could then translate into tangible achievements that convinced me that I must do one thing and do one thing extraordinarily well in order to make it. At the time, making it for me consisted of a Broadway debut, a Forbes 30 under 30 list, you know, and placing a sell-by date on specific milestones and achievements that I actually had no control over. And during that time, I think I knew it was a racket. I, I think I knew I couldn't just achieve those shiny things out there by a certain date because I knew I, I was only in control of so much. Someone would have to bestow those achievements upon me. And I didn't leave school with money or connections. I, I didn't go to a private high school with a bunch of famous alumni. I didn't grow up in a town where I could, you know, brush shoulders with a variety of mentors. It was always just me you know, hustling and trying so, so very hard and knowing that this particular game I was playing was not mine 
and I would not win. And yet, I categorized changing the game as failing. Can you imagine thinking changing is failing? And I do, I do have some love in my heart for Passcourt because she was really steeped in a culture that was obsessed with young, early, major wins. And the culture, which I still think exists today, although I do see it slightly changing, pushes this myth around big achievements as if it's some kind of indicator of inner brilliance. While there are clearly so many people who have oodles of brilliance seeping out of their pores and yet no access to the media or industry leaders or like a PR firm that bestows recognition. Aditi Juneja said it best in her article for Vox. She was on the Forbes 30 Under 30, and this is what she had to say about that list. Lists like these, which fetishize achievement, particularly at a young age, erase the privilege and access that allow some of us to take career risks and be entrepreneurial in ways others can't. They diminish the hard work done by people in more challenging circumstances and add to the myth that if you just work hard enough, you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. They ignore that some people have neither boots nor straps. So even if the winners of these special achievements, the people on the 30 under 30 and, and getting these awards, even if, if they even recognize that there is a myth surrounding these things, that there is a fallacy in believing that only the very young can be impressive, why do we believe this myth? If I'm interrogating my own mind, and that's pretty much what this podcast is, then maybe my first answer is that the myth about big breaks happening to the very young and very specialized was so embedded in my own mind because it is not easy to hang out in the unknown liminal space. If I reach my goal by age 25, then great. I'm a success. That's settled. As if once you catch your big break, then that's it. That's the end of the interrogation. That's the end of growth. That's the end of change. As if catching a big break means all the answers about life will now be revealed. In some ways, my goal when I left college, which was to be on Broadway within three years, my goal basically said, I want a short career. I want to peak early. I don't want time to grow. I am not playing the long game. It is, you know, very Veruca Salt. I want it now. I didn't expect or plan for change. I expected and planned for a big break and then assumed that big break would mean that everything would stay the same forever and ever and I'd be on Broadway forever and ever, bopping from show to show forever and ever and be happy with that forever and ever. When I stopped auditioning, I started writing a book and I remember believing, ah, this is it. I'm an author now until I decided I'm a screenwriter now. Until I decided, I'm a director now. You get the point. And while my younger self would judge all these shifts in directions as terribly messing up, these changes in direction are very natural, very human, very science, and very nature. Nature changes all the time. To quote Future Island, seasons change. What we ignore or fail to realize is that the change itself is stability. It's actually a concept called allostasis, which is a concept originating in neuroscience that means stability through change, basically stating that the only true way to feeling stable is to allow yourself to keep 
changing. That liminal space that I feel like I was so afraid of was actually the stability. There was a guest essay in the Times over the summer by Brad Stolberg, and in it he says, Adopting an allostatic outlook acknowledges that the goal of mature adulthood is not to avoid, fight, or try to control change, but rather to skillfully engage with it. It recognizes that after disorder, there is often no going back to the way things were, no one form of order, but many forms of reorder. Via this shift, you come to view change and disorder not as something that happens to you, but as something that you are working with an ongoing dance between you and your environment. You stop fearing change, which is to say, you stop fearing life. I think the underlying question then is this. If I keep changing and shifting, am I losing my chance to make a big impact, to catch a big break? Will I dilute my chance at a great career in the arts if I just keep bopping around? If you are an indie creative who feels like a creative generalist with a lot of interests and a lot of ideas and a lot of changing inclinations, and you still want that big break to come, you want to make a huge impact, guess what? Life is actually set up for that to happen. You're not lost. You are, in fact, doing the dance with life, staying in the game. And my argument is going to be that shifting and staying in the dance is how to catch a big break. And so now, I'd like to direct our attention to the concept of time horizons. Time horizons can also be called planning horizons. And essentially, time horizons are a fixed point of time in the future when certain things will be evaluated or end. So in economics, time horizons are periods where investments are held until they are needed. They can vary according to the investment goal, so they can be short horizons or long horizons, and they vary according to the time by which you begin investing. So the longer the time horizon, the longer the power of compounding has to work. So for instance, if you're going to put money into an IRA or some other, you know, high interest uh, savings account, you could save for five years and have enough to take a really nice vacation when you take it out, and that would be a short time horizon. Or you could put it in for 30 years and take it out at a long time horizon for retirement. And when it is a long time horizon, the compounding interest is significantly exponentially higher than the short time horizon. Needless to say, if you have the wrong time horizon in mind for your retirement, like, of course you're going to fail. You can't put away for five years and then think you're going to still be at the same place that you could be in 30 because interest compounds the longer you save. Compounding interest happens in our careers too. If you're a creative generalist, trying out a bunch of creative mediums, getting deep into different ideas, testing out partnerships with a wide variety of people, these are actual investments that you're making. But if each time you make that investment, you're taking it out and evaluating what has happened in a short time horizon, you're missing the compounding effects that will show up later in the game. For instance, if you are making an investment by, let's say, learning how to write a screenplay, please don't judge your potential outcomes by the first screenplay. The first screenplay is merely the first $100 you're putting into the savings account. You need a longer time horizon to know how much that $100, that screenplay can compound. And what you don't know 
is how your writing will change, what producers you might partner with in the future, what topics you'll be interested in five years from now, how that merges with what's happening in the media landscape and the cultural landscape, how you might gain a new skill maybe in personal essay writing that somehow impacts your screenwriting. All of this is to say that these investments you make over time will compound upon your initial investment of writing your first screenplay. And you need the right time horizon to evaluate how it's going. We can look at a case study of Ava DuVernay, the filmmaker, director, uh, entrepreneur, to see how this has worked. And obviously, this is going to be a quick breakdown. And I hope you take it with a grain of salt because I obviously don't know her personally. But this is what I've gathered from the internet. So her first investment was working in a PR firm for about 10 years or so. So she had her own PR f- firm as well before she even picked up a camera. So she her first investment was entrepreneurship, leadership, probably a lot of connections, collaborating, and like probably some solid financial gains. Investment two, she made her first short film in 2005 at 32 years old with $6,000 from savings. So that compounded that first investment with a new medium. She went from PR to, let me try filmmaking. Investment three was she studied filmmaking through documentaries because they were inexpensive. So now she's compounding investments one and two with new knowledge, new learning, and trying to make documentaries because they're cheap to make and seeing how much she could learn from just doing some some of that work. Investment number four, she directed her first feature five years later. So she spent about five years learning and then she directed I Will Follow, which wasn't you know huge on the radar of a lot of people, but it compounded investments one, two, and three and took a big swing at a bigger project, which was doing a feature. So maybe the first three investments were like her hundred dollars. And maybe you could say, you know, this first big swing is putting $1,000 into the savings account. Investment five, she did a second fe- feature. So compounding everything before, putting more investment in. And then investment six, finally, she did Selma, her third. And that's what got her noticed on a larger level about 10 years later. So she was constantly making these investments. And it wasn't like one just built off of the other. They compounded. You can see how a slow start five years where like really not too much is happening to the outside world. And then she's got five years of exponential growth on the other side of that. But those two parts are working together. The years that no one sees and the years that start to get attention are not unrelated. They are dependent on each other. You can't get those second five years without the first. And now she has this big deal with Ron Howard and she has her production company and she has this whole business um, for crewing up and bringing people of color onto set and really diversifying the field. I mean, it's a huge, huge project that she has taken on just in that one wing, but then she also has the distribution and she's making films. I mean, she is doing everything and I don't think she spent $6,000 of her own money to make her first short film with all of that in mind. I mean, maybe she did. Like, I don't know her. Maybe she did. But the point was 
She has been in it for a long time horizon. And my guess is she's not done yet. Look, I don't think I'm saying anything particularly new here, but I do think it's something we have to repeat again and again to get us out of these mental myths we perpetuate in ourselves. It's so easy to spiral when we don't see the direct fruits of our labor or we're feeling pulled in multiple directions. And while many of us are afraid of change, I would argue that most of us don't change enough. There is plenty of time for your big break. But remember, I'm saying this to myself, Courtney, remember, a big break is change. It's something different than what we've been doing. It's something new. As they say, every overnight success is 10 years in the making, 10 years of investment at the very least. So the best way to move the ball forward and break through the noise is making recurring investments that will compound. So let's do that now. We're going to do a horizon audit and then some forecasting. As always, you can pause this and journal as we go, or you can just listen to it and come back to it later. So first, let's do the audit. Number one, take a look at what you were working on five years ago. What was your main focus? What were your values? What were your challenges? And what skills did you use every day? Values, challenges, (laughs) skills. Now look at today. What is your main focus? What are your values? What are your challenges? And what skills are you using every day? So you've got where you were five years ago and you've got where you are today. You've got kind of those two pictures. So now the last question in the audit, what skills or perspectives did you have to gain to be where you are now? For me, five years ago, I hadn't directed. And now I want to direct a feature. And the skills that I had to gain were... (laughs) figuring out how to how a set works, figuring out a lot of technical stuff, practicing with my short film, practicing with my web series, which was like, you could look at that as either a feature or seven short films. I had to learn a lot about collaboration. I had to learn how to fundraise, how to market, how to build an audience, how to keep my head cool. <laughs> When there were so many fires to put out, film festival. I mean, like the list is really long and that's just me off off the dome. I'm sure there are more specific things and I'm sure as you're thinking about this in your own life, you can come up with a list of 50 things that you've had to learn between then and now. So let's move on to forecasting now that we've done the audit. So number one, where do you want to be in five years? And I think this is really hard question to answer. So let's again break it down. What will be your values? What will be your challenges? And what skills will you use every day? So in five years, maybe you're like me and you want to be directing feature films regularly. So my values might be creative control uh, or freedom or you know flexibility. Uh, collaboration. My challenges will be probably funding, (laughs) as it always is, a challenge to fund a film, getting a film made. And the skills that I'll be using every day 
will probably be a lot of confidence, a lot of gusto, uh, the skill of um, (laughs) delusion (laughs) when you're trying to make art that that's, that is so big and needs a lot of money to be made or, or maybe my skills that I'm going to be needing to use every day are scrappiness and ingenuity and a ton of creativity of how to get things made for less money. And number two, what skills or perspectives will you have to gain to get there? So maybe the skills that I need to get there is the ability to execute my work quickly and without a lot of money or pitching myself or just grow my confidence. So now the final question and how we actually go about planning a big break, what are three investments you can put into your account to help you gain those skills? So if I want the ability to execute my work quickly and without a lot of money, then an investment I could make over the next five years would be to learn Final Cut or Premiere and learn how to edit. If I want to get better at pitching myself, maybe the investment that I make is in the next year, submit for 15 different grants. And finally, if I want to grow my confidence, Maybe the investment that I need to make is to make a short film if I'm someone who hasn't made a short film before. So you can see how when you focus on not the outcome of like, oh, I'm going to catch this big break from someone else out there and refocus it on your investments, you're allowing the magic to happen. You're allowing the investments to compound. You can do a short film or you can submit for 15 grants and know that that is going to do something for you. It is going to grow some kind of skill, even if you don't get the recognition from outside sources or the big break from outside sources, you're still moving forward. You're still compounding those investments. The last thing I'll say here that is sort of implicit, but I haven't said it yet, is that you're going to fail. You're going to fail. We all fail. And failure isn't final. And I know that sounds like it could go on a Nike shirt, and I apologize for that, but it's because it's true. And Nike knows it's true. And you know it's true. And I know it's true. Like, so what if you invest in something that doesn't have a return? So what if you make a short film that doesn't, you know, premiere at Sundance? So what if your creative goals change in five years from now? So what if you didn't make it to 30 under 30 or (laughs) for some of us, even 40 under 40? Whatever we deem as failures, and I'm saying that in quotes, those things don't really mean anything to the outside world. They mean something to us. And I get that and validate that. And I think it's really worth investigating what they mean to us. But your history doesn't end with your latest failure. And it also doesn't end with your latest success. It is a long game. And if we're very, very lucky, one we get to play for a long time. Okay, that's all I got for today. And I'm so happy that you're here. If you liked the show or any of the shows, please rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Wow, it makes such a big difference. And um, if you screenshot this and share it on social and tag us at Let's Go Again Pod, that would be really fantastic too. I would really appreciate that. Um, Lots of cool stuff coming up. Lots of free stuff in the show notes for pitching, for uh, greenlighting your own work, for a reading list, uh, all kinds of free stuff in the show notes. So make sure you go there. Thank you for 
listening to my son in the background of this podcast episode. He is really chatty today and he still hasn't slept. All right. I love you so much and I'll see you next week. Bye.